0: It's such a joy to be here uh, with you guys. We are thrilled after many months of uh, praying and thinking and uh, talking and investigating and now planning and moving to finally be here. And it doesn't feel like we're actually here yet. We, our kids were saying the other day, it still feels like we're on vacation in Bogota. And, uh, but as life b- begins to settle, out, settle down and as we get settled here, uh, we're thankful for the warm welcome that we've received from all of you guys. Look forward to getting to know you. And to walking uh, with with the Lord together with you guys, Um, this morning uh, you get not only a new pastor but a new sermon series, and uh, so we are going to be working our way through the life of Moses as it's recorded in the Book of Exodus. Uh, Moses is perhaps the most important human figure of the Old Testament, Uh, and uh, God uh, chose him to lead his people through uh, what is the most important event of the Old Testament, and that is the exodus out of slavery in Egypt. Exodus means the road out, and so Moses is the one who led people on the road out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into the promised land. And if you were a believer in God before the time of Jesus, uh, the exodus and Moses would have been uh, massive in your mind and in your identity. If you uh, were a believer at that time, your parents would have told you about the exodus at the dinner table every night. Uh, every year you would have had the festival, the Passover, that you would have celebrated, that celebrated the exodus out of Egypt. When you went to synagogue on Saturdays, you would have sung psalms about the exodus and heard stories about the exodus. And even if your parents hadn't been in, uh, in that first generation, your grandparents or your, or, or your great-grandparents had been, and so they would have talked about it all the time. If you wanted to know if God loved you, and if God had the power to save you, then all you did was look back to the Exodus as your one prime example of God's love and God's fulfillment of his promises. But for us as New Testament believers, after the coming of Jesus, the Exodus takes on a new meaning for us. Jesus, when he came, he taught during his earthly ministry that he was leading a new exodus and that he, in many ways, was just was like a new Moses to come lead the people out of slavery, but not out of slavery in Egypt, not out of slavery to the Romans who were in charge during Jesus' time, but a bigger exodus. The real Exodus, the the Exodus that only that the first Exodus was merely a shadow of, pointing its way to an Exodus out of the slavery to sin. And so, as we look at the life of Moses, we will examine it through the lenses of as New Testament believers, uh, and and see how God has how God prepared His people for the coming of Jesus. Uh, through the works of Moses and the life of Moses and the uh, the work of the Exodus. Our passage this morning in Exodus 1 sets the stage, sets the stage for where the people are as they await a Savior to come deliver them out of slavery. And so uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Exodus chapter 1. Uh, If not, the words will be printed for you here up on the screen. So I invite you to please stand as we read God's word from Exodus chapter 1. This is God's Word. These are, the, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaohs store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we... Thank you for your word, and we pray this morning that you would make it clear to us, not only clear to our mind and our understanding, but that you would impress it on our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would change us as you promised to do, that we might be more conformed to the image of Christ, our Redeemer. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Back in 2016, an author named J.D. Vance wrote a memoir called Hillbilly Elegy. You may have read the book. You may have seen the movie that they made out of it a couple of years ago. Uh, and in the book, he describes a very dysfunctional childhood. His parents were divorced when he was young. His mom went through a series of boyfriends that were, that, uh, uh, that were physically abusive and neglect, uh, neglectful of him. Uh, he uh, witnessed all kinds of uh, addiction and physical abuse, neglect. It, it, was, a, it was a terrible, terrible childhood. Uh, and But there was this recurring pattern throughout his life that makes the book such a painful read, and that is that several times he gets so close to getting out of the spiral of poverty and addiction and abuse, but something happens that his, he gets pulled back in again he 'll get an opportunity to get a job, and, and his mom would. Uh, have too much to drink and oversleep and not take him to it the next day. Or he'd get an opportunity and failed to fill out the applications just because his family was disorganized. And so he would almost get out and then get pulled back in again to get back into the cycle. Eventually he moves in with his grandmother, who has a little bit more stability in her life, and she uh, nurtures him and cares for him and organizes his life in such a way where he's able to finally escape, and he gets an Ivy League education and, and uh, ends up and now he's running for office in the United States. And so he writes the memoir as a look back onto his life as it was when he was in that cycle. And really the, purpose of the uh, there are two purposes of the book that you get as you read it. First is, as he looks back on his life, he's able to be thankful for where he is now compared to where he was then. He's able to look back at all the dysfunction and the difficulty and say, thanks be to God that I was taken out of that and now I'm in a better place. And he can reflect on some of the patterns that were there and he can learn about himself even now as he, and the person that he is based on what he's able to see back in his past. But the second reason, uh, the second uh, purpose of the book is to give hope to those who are still trapped in the cycle of violence and abuse and oppression. To show them that there is a way out of that type of a life, that there is a way out of that. There's hope for you if you're trapped in that cycle. Well, our passage this morning functions in a similar way. It functioned in a similar way in the life of Israel and functions in a similar way for us. When Moses wrote these words, Uh, the the people of Israel were long out of Egypt. They had already come out of Egypt, and they were somewhere on their way to the promised land. And so when they, they read these words, it was not as people who were right in the midst of slavery anymore. They were already out of it, but they were looking back on it in order to give thanks to God that they weren't still in it. But there was another reason why Moses would have written these words. If you know something of the story of the Bible, you know that almost every other chapter, every time the people of Israel as they wander through the wilderness encounter a difficulty, some kind of trial, what do they tell Moses? Moses, you should never have taken us out of Egypt. It was good back there, and we want to go back. <laughs> we had food to eat, and we were taken care of. And so Moses writes these words in order to remind them of what their life was like before God brought them out of slavery, and to encourage them and to press them not to get pulled back in. You and I, we, we know that same pull, don't we? That if you're a Christian this morning and you've been delivered out of slavery, you can look back at this and you can be, give thanks to God for, give, for delivering you out of that life. But you also know that there is a constant pull in your life back to where you once were, desires that you once had, or patterns that were once in your life, and you can feel that pull on a daily basis back into the old person. And so what God wants to do for us this morning is to remind you, to remind me, that God has delivered you from the slavery to sin. And because God has delivered you out of sin, don't go back to it. Because God has delivered you out of it, don't let it pull you back in. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to to unpack that, that God's deliverance in three ways, to see three ways that God has delivered us out of slavery, and then so that it can help us to resist the temptation when we are tempted to be pulled back into it. And I want us to see three things. I want us to see that God breaks the dominion of sin, that God exposes the methods of sin, and that God thwarts the aims of sin. That's where we're headed this morning. So first, let's see that how God breaks the dominion of sin in our life. Um, backing up a little bit, looking at the end of the book of Genesis, you remember that Joseph uh, ended up in uh, in, uh, in Egypt, and he was responsible for saving not only Egypt, but his family, Jacob and all of his brothers uh, and and sisters whose names are listed there at the beginning of our passage. They end up in Egypt because they had food there. And uh, Joseph was the prime minister. He was the one who saved everybody. And and so he was a very important guy during that time. And during that time, we're told that uh, the people of Israel flourished. Just as Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply, the people of Israel were fruitful and they multiplied. They had lots of kids. They had lots of prosperity in Egypt during those times. But... What happened? A new administration came into power in Egypt, and this new king, we're told, did not know Joseph. Joseph, maybe the history books hadn't recorded his deeds well enough, but whatever the case may be, this new pharaoh didn't know Joseph. He didn't remember all the good things he did. He didn't remember how he'd saved Egypt, and so he looked around at all these people who had multiplied under his kingdom and said, We need to do something about this because these people are going to be trouble for us. And so this new administration comes into power and what does he do? He begins to oppress the people. This new king comes, this this king who uses all the authority and the power at his disposal to oppress the people uh, of Israel. And did you notice how his rule is all-encompassing? He has power over their work. He makes them work with these heavy burdens, building storehouses for his own kingdom and for his own purposes. But it's not only an authority that he exercises over their work life, he exercises it over their family life. Hear this horrifying description as he tells these two Egyptian midwives to murder the, the male sons of these uh, Hebrew families. It is a, an authority and a rule that is all-encompassing, and all, uh, and, and, and dominates every single part of their life. And friends, this is a picture of, uh, of the domination of sin in our own lives. Uh, just like the king of Egypt, sin is an intruder into an otherwise good existence. God created the world good, but sin intruded, and it wasn't content just to uh, occupy the religious portion of your life or the monetary portion of your life or or your thought life. It, sin wants to dominate every single part of our life. It's not content to remain contained uh, into one part of it. Um, Sin is a, a taskmaster like the taskmasters in Egypt that, that stands over us and tells us what to do and where to go and what to do and who you can spend your time with and, and who you can't spend your time with. Sin is a, an, an all-powerful, not all-powerful, but, a, but it desires to have an all-encompassing effect on your life. You remember, kids, if you've ever read the story of the, uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Maybe some adults have read it as well. When the, when the kids first go through the, uh, through the wardrobe into the land of Narnia, what's it like? It's not a, a land of green and, and, and beauty. It's a land of snow and ice. And why is that? Because, it's the, because the white witch is in charge of it. There's a figure who's in charge of, the, of Narnia at that time, and she will not allow any life to grow whatsoever. There's no questioning her authority. There's nothing that you can do. And anybody who questions her authority, what do they get? They get the wand, and they get turned into stone. And so her palace is filled with stone statues of anybody who would question her authority or anybody who would prove to be a threat to her rule. And that's what sin is like, friends. It is something that wants to keep you under control as one of its subjects. But if you're a Christian this morning, then Jesus has broken the dominion of sin over your life. He's broken it. He has unseated the ruler that once ruled our hearts and ruled every, every aspect of our lives. And so while sin still remains in us, it no longer reigns. It no longer has the power it once did over your life, and that's helpful to remember at those times when we are are tempted to be pulled back into that life. Because uh, I don't know about you, but when you face a, a desire or a temptation to sin, it's very easy to think, "Well, I can just do it this once," or "Or this is just my thoughts, and as long as it stays sort of contained within my thought life, then it's not going to spread any further into my actions or my words." Or just this one time, I'm going to do it. And then after that, I'll give it up and that'll be it. Sin will not allow that. It will not be content to just remain in one part of your life. And so if you give over one part of your life to sinful tendencies and to give give into temptation in this one area of your life, you can bet, the scriptures teach, that it will spread to other aspects of your life because it desires to rule over you. But Jesus has broken that. Jesus has broken that authority that it had over your life. And so don't submit to it. Resist it. Speak to it and tell it. You don't have the authority that you once had. Jesus is my king. God has delivered me out of the domain of darkness and placed me into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now Jesus is the ruler and the king in my life. So God has broken the power of sin. He has broken the authority and the dominion of sin over our life. But he's he's done more than that. And I want us to see a second thing that God does when he delivers us from sin. And that is he exposes the methods of sin. Exposes the methods of sin for us. Listen again to what the king of Egypt says to his people in verse 10. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Shrewdly—that's not a word that we use uh, very often. Uh, but what does he mean by that? Well, to, shrewdly means to conquer by subtle devices. In other words, it's not a head-on attack. It's not an obvious and open assault on you. But it's subtle. It's underhanded. It's a sideswipe. It's a Trojan horse that looks like one thing and yet is something else entirely. And so that word there, shrewd, is picked up in a number of different places in the Bible. You remember Genesis 3, where we're told that the serpent was wiser than any other animal in, that God had made. It's, it was, it, the, the serpent is shrewd, just like the king of Egypt. In Psalm 105, the psalmist picks up on that, that same word and says uh, that he turned the hearts, to uh, the Pharaoh turned their hearts to hate God's people and to deal craftily with his servants. That's a word that they want us to notice there because it gets repeated again and again. Now, how is, how is Pharaoh shrewd in this story? It doesn't seem very shrewd. He seems pretty heavy-handed, pretty uh, overt. Hey, we're going to enslave you and you're going to work for me. But if you look beneath the surface a little bit, there's, there's, some, there's some underhandedness and there's some deception going on here. First of all, there's a lie at the heart of the king of Egypt's campaign to his people right? He says, look, these people are dangerous. They're numerous, and if we get into a fight with another country, they're going to join the other side, and they're going to kill us, which was a lie. He had no reason to believe that whatsoever, but he tells the people that so that they will oppress the people of Israel. But uh, uh, on top of that, uh, most people throughout history have, uh, most people who have been enslaved throughout history have not been enslaved willingly. They have been Uh, 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 lured into it in a number of different ways. I came across an account this week from an African woman who was enslaved in the New World, and she she wrote this. Uh, She says, I was playing by the seacoast when a white man offered me sugar plums and told me to go with him, first into a boat, then into a ship. Everything seemed strange to me, and I asked him to let me go back, but he would not hear me. And when I went to look for the place where he found me, I could see nothing of land, and I began to cry. There I was for a long time with a great many more of my own color until the ship came to land. Enticed by sugar plums, come get in the boat, come get in the ship, and then before she knew it, she couldn't even see her land anymore, and there she was enslaved. Maybe Pharaoh enticed the people of Israel with a Steady government paycheck or uh, lots of construction projects that he said, "Hey, I've got steady work for you. If you don't want, if you if you need a a side gig after you've done after you're done being a shepherd, come work for me." And before they knew it, there they were under their taskmasters and slaves in the kingdom of Egypt. Well, the methods of sin haven't changed, have they, since the time of Egypt? Methods of sin are, are still a bait and switch still a deception that, they, that, that sin gives us and tries to lure us in and entice us. It's never a full uh, frontal attack and an obvious attack. We see this today uh, in our world. Uh, I'll tell you what, the, the biggest example of it I see is, is this. Uh, 86% of Americans uh, polled, but I would say that it was probably true for people around the world, uh, agree with this statement that if you want a fulfilled and happy life, you need to follow what you desire most and live an authentic life. If you want to live a fulfilled and happy life, you need to find out who your authentic self, self is and you find out the desires of your heart and you need to live consistently with those. Sounds good, right? Sounds plausible. So, if, I, who doesn't want a happy and fulfilled life? and who doesn't want to, to understand the desires of our hearts. But if you follow that advice for very long, you will see that it will lead to its own peculiar and cruel form of slavery. One author put it like this. If you just want to muddle through life, do your best, see your friends when you can, and try to enjoy yourself as much as possible, according to today's culture, that is considered failure. You must live your best life and be the best version of yourself, otherwise you're nothing and no one. The constant search for self-fulfillment within, the constant search for trying to uh, live your best life now, will always be met with disappointment. It will always be a heavy, burden to carry, because you will be limited by your own ability to know your own desires, which you won't ever know for sure. You will be enslaved to the opinions of others. You'll constantly be brought up short by the beautiful and happy lives that you see online and in your Instagram feed, to which you will always compare your life. They're living their best life now, and I'm not, and they're, they're living their true authentic self, and I don't even know who my true authentic self is. It's a heavy burden to bear, a heavy burden to carry, Because it's a lie. It's a lie that that's where fulfillment is found. It's a lie that that's where happiness is found. And friends, part of what Jesus wants to do is he wants to open your eyes. He wants to reveal those methods of sin so that you can see them. And when you hear that message or any of the hundreds of other messages of deception, you'll be able to say, no, that's not true. Fulfillment and happiness is not found within me and in my own desires. Fulfillment and happiness is found in submitting my own desires to the kingship of Jesus and in allowing him to rule and reign over my life. That's what it means to live a full and happy life. That's where joy is found. And so we can see that deception and say, no, I'm not going to get pulled back in by the bait and switch of sin. So we've seen how, how God breaks the dominion of sin in our life. We've seen how he reveals the methods of sin, but there's one more thing I want you to see because I want you to see not just uh, what sin's power does or what sin's methods are. I want you to see what sin is after. What is the goal of sin in your life? What is the goal of, uh, of, of Satan as he comes into our life? Well, his goal is ultimately death, and God thwarts God thwarts the aims of sin. God thwarts the goals of sin in your life. We see that goal here in our passage in verses 15 through 22. After Pharaoh fails to crush the people through this slavery, what does he do? He uh, goes to the Hebrew midwives and tells them, as we've seen, if if a male child's born to the Hebrews, you need to kill him what that shows us is that Pharaoh is not content just to reassign the people to another part of his kingdom or, or to just take advantage of them for a certain amount of time. No, he wants them gone. His goal is genocide. His goal is to completely eliminate the people of Israel. And for the people of Israel, this would have been even more of a threat than just losing their race. But you remember back in Genesis 3, 3, After Adam and Eve fell into sin, what did God promise them? He said, I'm going to send a male son through you, Eve. I'm going to send a seed that is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, my adversary. And so this threat of Pharaoh was not just a threat to the people. It was a threat to God's promise to to send a redeemer, to send a savior through the people of Israel. And so this was Satan's way of trying to crush the promises of God. The ultimate goal of sin in our lives is the same. It's to eliminate us, to completely rob us of the life for which God created us, to take away the things that that, that God wants to do in our lives. And you and I feel this. Whenever we give in to sin, we feel that the way that it robs us of the very life that God has designed us for the harsh words that kill relationships the neglect in your in your relationships that leaves them cold the the way that addiction to substances or whatever it might be the way they destroy your body and your mind and your heart the way greed and envy destroy your ability to even be happy because if you're if you suffer if you struggle with greed or envy Whatever you have, it's never enough. And so you feel like, I can't be happy until I've got this, and which is one more dollar or one more experience or one more, one more place to travel to. So There's something that you're always missing. And so it robs you of your very ability to, to have joy. It wants to take from you. Sin will only subtract from your life despite the promises that it makes. But friends, God will not allow sin to get its way with you. If you're a believer today, God thwarts that that design of sin to give you death and he gives you life in its place. What does God do here? He puts the fear of God into these two women who put their lives at risk, disobey the Pharaoh, and they let the male children live. And what does God do in return for these two women? It says he gave them families. The ones who pushed back death received life. And friends, that's, these two women are a shadow of what Jesus would ultimately come to do. Jesus, who not only put his life at risk, but who laid down his life for us at the cross, gave it up experienced the death that you and I deserved. And in response, what did God do? He gave him a family. He gave him a house, not a wife and children like the Hebrew midwives, but brothers and sisters, you and me, to gather together into the family of God, into the household of God as beloved children of the Heavenly Father. That's the family that God has given to Jesus, you and me. And so that's why Jesus can say in John 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The life is what Jesus offers to you. So let's close with just a brief word of application here. In Romans 6, Paul writes. the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul encourages us to do just what we've done, and that is to look back on the times of being under slavery and to ask ourselves, What fruit did I get from that life? What benefit did that life bring me? And the answer, of course, is those things lead to death. So resist the pull back into them. Resist the temptation to go back into that kind of life and let those memories of sorrow, those sorrows of the slavery of sin, drive you to the cross, to drive you to Jesus and to submit your life to him as your king. And if you're not a Christian this morning, the, 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 the application for you is a, is a little bit different. And even if you don't know where you stand with God or Jesus, the Bible says that you are still in this cycle, this cycle of slavery. And so I want you to, it's an encouragement for you to ask, who owns you? What owns you? To what do you, what do you obey in your life that has command over you and authority over you? Whatever it is, it is a heavy burden. It is a taskmaster that doesn't want your good. It wants you to serve it. And so come to Jesus. Come to Jesus as the king who can set you free from slavery and set you free to live a fulfilling life of joy in him. Only he can give you the abundant life for which he made you. And so have hope. Have hope and come to him. And be delivered from your slavery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the deliverance that is ours in Christ. We thank you that you have called us out of slavery and, and made us slaves of righteousness, children of God and no longer slaves. And so we pray that you would help us in those moments where we feel the pool of sin, where we feel the desire to go back to the way that things were, that you would persuade our hearts, that you would remind us that back there is only bondage, but only with you do we have the freedom to live free lives, free to serve you as your children. God, set us, if if there are those who do not know you, Lord, we pray that you would set them free from sin and bring them into the abundant and eternal life that Jesus offers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.